Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station here in Louisville. We are Forward Radio 106.5 FM and live streaming at forwardradio.org. You can listen to us anywhere you can get an internet signal, including Long Beach, California, which is where our guest for the day is joining us from. I want to welcome to the virtual studio Mr. Tom Bowman. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me, Justin. It's great to be here. You you want to make us jealous here in Louisville about what your weather is out in Long Beach right now? <laughs> you know, yesterday <laughs> there was water falling all over the place out of the sky, and we didn't know what it meant. Um, to, but today the sun is out, and the weather is really beautiful. So uh, yeah, that's how we roll here. <laughs> yeah, and the magic of the internet. It's good to have you joining us here in studio in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, folks. Tom Bowman is a common sense climate expert, and I'm really excited to have. Have him on the show today for us to take a deep dive into the latest book he's co-editor on. It's called Resetting Our Future, Empowering Climate Action in the United States. Boy, that's a title that says it all, right? This is what we need to do. Uh, if you want to play along at home, uh, you can find the book and find out more about Tom at TomBowman.com. That's T-O-M-B-O-W-M-A-N.com. And he's also co-author, along with Deb L. Morrison, of an ACE National Strategic Planning Framework for the U.S., which you can find out more about at aceframework.us. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation today about uh, climate action here in the U.S. and the controversies over pipelines. Uh, there's some actions taking place. In fact, some folks from uh, Extinction Rebellion Kentucky have recently gone up to Minnesota to join the water protectors struggling against uh, the pipelines in, in Minnesota. Uh, so we're going to talk about these kinds of things today on the show. Tom, why don't you give us a, just a quick overview of the book? Who are the authors in it and why you pulled this book together? Sure. So last year I was involved in a, and Deb and I were involved in the most extraordinary climate action project I have experienced ever in my life. And I've been at this working on energy efficiency since the 1980s. I've been working on climate change communication specifically for 20 years. And this is unlike anything I've ever seen. Wow. Last year, about 150 diverse climate leaders who are activists, educators, scientists, government officials, strategic communication people like me, climate justice activists, indigenous rights activists, came together in a series of dialogues to co-create a framework for doing a national strategic plan to empower, inform, and engage the public on climate change. And we did this in the context of one of the articles of the Paris Climate Agreement, which at calls upon every nation to do exactly this thing. It's voluntary, it's not required. And with very, we had some, you know, we are very thankful to a couple of sources of financial support, but 90% of what we did was voluntary, mm. voluntary of everyone who participated. And Deb Morrison and I had the great opportunity and the honor to be the writers of a summary document that captured all of the amazing input that people provided. And we didn't try to filter it through our own voices. We tried to bring forward the voices of the people who contributed. And that is what you mentioned in the yeah. introduction. It's an ACE strategic planning framework for the United States, which and, we hope will be And what does ACE the... stand for, ACE? Yes, I should tell you that. <laughs> so in the language of the Paris Agreement and the underlying treaty, which is called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, ACE stands for Action for Climate Empowerment. 
Okay. It's it's one of the articles of the agreement. And action for climate empowerment is defined by the UN treaty as encouraging the people who live in every country of the world to participate. It's a, it's a real recognition that if the public isn't engaged in finding solutions to the climate challenge, we won't make progress quickly enough. And if the processes by which they engage are not equitable and just, we will not achieve an equitable and just society. And can I just ask by saying engaging the public, when you say that, immediately we think of like individuals and voters. Yes, But, but exactly. I think you mean also institutions in the public sphere, right? Uh, whether it's universities or communities of faith, right? Nonprofit organizations. Uh, are all those part of the mix in this? You can just keep reading the list as it comes <laughs> to your mind and you'll be exactly right. It includes broadcasters like you. It includes, you know, the media more broadly. It includes all of the community groups that form to do all kinds of things. It means urban sustainability directors and municipal governments. Yeah. The real focus of this work, as we have understood it in the United States, and this is, this is kind of unique in the world so far, is that the focus is on community-level action, because it's in communities that we experience the changing climate. Absolutely. And it's in communities where we create the societies we choose to live in and take care yep. of our, ourselves and our families. So it's education, it's NGOs, it's businesses, it's institutions. It's local governance, it's state and regional governance, it's tribal governance, it's all of these levels of organization and entities. And the really the magical thing is that in this process, we didn't work with educators alone and then work with activists alone mm -hmm. and then work with others in isolation. We intentionally created a process that cut across all these silos. Mm, and nice. so you had really diverse groups of people coming together as equals lowering their logos and thinking, uh, it, it, you know, engaging with each other without our social stature and our job titles and nobody was making a presentation. We were engaged in dialogue, structured dialogue. And when you do that, you discover just how phenomenally rich people's knowledge and capacity and commitment and wisdom is everywhere, wow. everywhere. Wow. And it's very, very inspiring. Wow, that is that is exciting. And, you know, when we think about getting the communities engaged, it, it's partly because you need the motivation of seeing change in your own community to want to participate in this battling this global crisis. Right. We also know that, you know, we humans tend to care about people they know or they're related to. And so understanding the climate change impacts right here in Louisville, Kentucky, for instance, is, is part of what would motivate people in Louisville to take action. But I also think as someone who studied sustainability, that it's vital that we not try and fix this or any other problem in a really top-down way where we say, here's the silver bullet solution mm -hmm. for every community in America. You all got to have light rail or whatever, right? <laughs> like, right, it, that's right. It's really up to those communities to figure out what's a sustainable solution for us, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, there's a scientist I know who likes to say there is no silver bullet when it comes to climate change. There's silver buckshot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what that's really saying is that different different solutions will work in different communities. The, the, the real key to ACE, in addition to empowering historically marginalized voices and the power of the people in community, is that we have all these amazing resources. We have all this richness of skill and practice and diversity and knowledge. 
but it's not aligned in a strategic way. Mm. We have all these communities working in isolation from one another. Mm. And so one of the things the ACE strategy can do is it can bring co-learning together across big networks, oh, wow. across cities, all in towns, all across the country, across activists, all across the country, youth activists and you know BIPOC activists and businesses, etc. So that everybody is working in a you know shared commitment toward a just transition to a clean economy and a low carbon future in ways that just don't happen now because because our work is so fragmented. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, let me understand the politics of this situation uh, <laughs> did, did, if I could. So, yeah. Is it true that the this effort that you're describing this ACE uh, national framework did this emerge out of the US pulling out of the Paris Accord and in the sort of we're still in movement or did this predate that yeah it actually predates that this work ah. has been going on for about 10 years okay and in various ways at various conferences in various conversations and it was i think the precipitating events were trump withdrawing from the paris agreement combined with the fact that we had a national election coming up yeah last november right yeah. and so this it became the moment to try to act and the ace Let's let's call it the ACE community. That's mm -hmm. how we sort of broadly referred mm -hmm. to it. All these diverse organizations and people, you know, with an election coming up, we knew we can't create an ACE national strategy. That's technically an official action of the federal government. Mm, I see. And we recognized that if a Democrat won the election, and at that point there was nobody knew who the candidate would be. Right then a Democratic candidate was going to want to rejoin Paris and going to probably want to rejoin Paris with some gusto. Right? <laughs> to show that the United States isn't gone and is a reliable partner and, you know, it kind of appealing to the American ideal that we're exceptional, which is severely challenged by the fact that we withdrew. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, it motivates people in the United States. And so given all of that, then what could we do as an as a non-government community of practitioners? Hmm. And the answer was we could start the strategic planning process and we would call it a strategic planning framework that would provide kind of a case study, uh, you know, a role to follow and a methodology and a network of connections and relationships uh, and a whole bunch of recommendations that then now the Biden administration is welcome to pick up on and a community that wants to do this work with them. So it lays groundwork to accelerate this and we are we are working very hard now in hopes that the Biden administration is going to say, yes, we are going to embrace this article of the Paris Agreement and we're going to create a national strategy and we're going to find ways to engage with the ACE practitioner community to do it. Yeah. Well, of course, we're still here in the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Right. So uh, <laughs> nobody ever wants to, you know, uh, put a pin in exactly how uh, progressive or, or strategic the incoming administration is until those 104 right. days are done. Uh, but can you just give me your initial thoughts on, on the incoming Biden administration? It seems like they're taking this issue a lot more seriously. Uh, let's hope it's not just greenwashing. But what are some of your thoughts at this point? I think that they're taking this issue more seriously than any president ever has. Wow. And they seem to, to understand a crucial point in the in the ACE community's work, which is that climate justice and climate action need to be exactly the same thing. Mm, that, that you can't do effective climate action following unjust processes that strip indigenous people of their lands and their cultures and their rights. You can't mine the community for its knowledge and take it away and own it. You, you need to genuinely engage, right? 
and empower the people. They seem to understand that, but I don't yet know if they know how to do it. And the reason I say that is that Gina McCarthy has a terrific video on the White House website where she's talking about climate action and she's calling on youth to, to become active and to vote as soon as they can. And the, the concluding statement is something like, you know, we want you to make noise and we will deliver the future that you deserve, which is still a top-down model, right? right? <laughs> it's a little bit like Teddy Roosevelt saying, uh, I agree with you, go make me do go it. Go make me do it, yes, yes. Right? And the ACE community is saying, mm, you know, this is this needs to be a process where the grassroots meet the top down. Right, right. And the top down creates strategies that empower the grassroots to do its work better financially mm -hmm. and with other resources and with networking and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And if they do that, then we unlock the creativity and energy of the American people. Mm -hmm. And I and I use that. I'm already checking myself for having said the American people. In the international context, at least, the idea that the people of the United States use that word I know. <laughs> to the exclusion of Central American countries and yeah. Mexico and All Canada the other Americans. Is, is really offensive, yeah. uh, let alone the tribal nations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that shorthand, you know, part of this process for a white person like me is to is to keep checking myself on my language. And I, there I did. I just stepped in it. So now you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. No, it happens all the time. And I appreciate exactly what you're saying. There was a time when I was in grad school and, and studying global development and, you know, a Fulbright scholar in the Philippines for living there for nine months and, and coming back and, and being really uncomfortable with that term and, and like, never, I refuse to mm -hmm. use that term. I'm going to boycott that term American. And, and you, over time you slip back into it because it's, it's, it's just easier, but I, I hear what you're saying. We need to remain yeah. cognizant of that. Exactly. So I'm so glad you brought that up. My guest here today on Sustainability Now here on Forward Radio is Tom Bowman. He's joining us virtually from Long Beach, California. He's known as a common sense climate expert, co-author of an ACE National Strategic Planning Framework for the United States, which you can find at aceframework.us, and co-editor of the book, Resetting Our Future, Empowering Climate Action in the United States, which you can learn more about and find him at tombowman.com, B-O-W-M-A-N.com. Uh, Tom... Can we talk about some pipelines right now? Um, the, the Keystone XL was sort of the signature battle during the Obama administration uh, for 350 and other climate activists. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we had some success on that, but the fight against pipelines is not over, right? <laughs> not even close. <laughs> That's right. So where are we at now? And do you think the writing is on the wall? for the pipeline industry, the fossil fuel industry in general? Or what do you think it's going to take to sort of change this paradigm of uh, <laughs> sourcing and transporting uh, fossil energy? Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting question. And um, the first thing I would, well, a couple of things. You're right. Keystone XL became the, the focal point. And for a lot of people, the fact that uh, Biden canceled it is kind of like checking the box and now we can move on to something else, <laughs> yeah, another subject, yeah. right? Because we have this sort of psychological single action bias. So I've done that thing. Now I don't have to think about it anymore. It was an important signal to send to the marketplace and to rural communities everywhere and to tribal communities. But we're not done. And yeah. the path forward is not going to be a straight line. And it's important to recognize that, that there will be setbacks and we'll move forward. And I think Biden has ordered a review of Trump's policies about wild lands and development on wild lands. 
and of you know shrinking bears ears and, and yeah. all of the, the other kind of wild lands to fossil fuel development the market is moving also it sure is very quickly and when markets move they can move at lightning speed without anybody seeing it coming and this to me is a great hope and the more that we empower communities to determine their own futures and to speak with their own collective voices the more we can trust that the future is not going to be about pipelines and so forth so there's a companion question about the lives and the well-being and the incomes of the people who work in those industries in those places you know, there's a lot of discussion about how green jobs are going to outpace fossil energy jobs. There will be more jobs in the future if we embrace a clean economy. There will be more jobs if we build a cleaner infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. jobs might not all be in the same locations, though. And right. this is very disruptive to communities. And so I think it's an unanswered question. And it's a, it's a question for communities and state governments to grapple with. I've been involved personally uh, earlier in my career with electric utility companies that build energy education centers. These are briefing centers where they, they train the trades and architects and building engineers to embrace energy efficiency in their work Yeah. Um, so that they improve the capacity. But they serve another function in a lot of parts of the country, which is that they become um, hubs for attracting industries into the region from outside the region. And they, they help, let's say I'm a big, a big corporation that needs to build a factory and I need a rail hub nearby and I need certain kind of truck access and a certain number of square feet and I want a tax break. Electric energy centers used to be and probably still are in some places, a place that would invite me to mm -hmm. the community and they'd bring state and, and local government people to meet me and they would do a real estate analysis and help me find something. And in other words, try to attract business to the community. And there's a lot of this work that needs to go on. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, it's more than workforce retraining. It's actually trying to create jobs where people are. And it's also trying to figure out in the community level, um, how to deal with the fact that the economy is changing and that the, the nature of jobs is changing and the locations of jobs are likely to change in many ways and, and how to minimize disruption and make our communities vibrant. Yeah. And we're certainly in the heart of that challenge right here in Kentucky, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, was long known as the coal state, uh, even though there's more jobs in forestry now in Kentucky than in coal. Um, people still want to frame it that way uh, and, and are mm -hmm. clinging on to the last few remaining coal mines uh, without really thinking forward about, you know, how are we actually going to restore these communities in Appalachia and Western Kentucky, too, that have, have depended on coal for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, one of the industries that is popping up uh, to, to uh, replace or, or or replace coal uh, is 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 methane, natural gas, uh, and so fracking has popped up in our region. Certainly in Ohio, uh, you, you see a lot of it, and it, it's tied to a larger petrochemical buildout happening here in the Ohio River Valley. Um, it, but the the impacts of fracking uh, are, are really horrific. Uh, they are. And it's, it puts us in a difficult place. If, if I look out our window here in the Hayburn building, I can see smokestacks from uh, the, the downtown medical campus, ironically enough, that has a central steam and chilled water plant that, uh, you know, to heat and cool the, the buildings and the hospitals uh, and the UofL uh, uh, clinics and things like that downtown here. 
2021 is going to be the final year that we burn any coal in that plant, which is exciting. Uh, I want to have a little ceremony where we chuck the last lump of coal into the <laughs> boiler. Um, but of course, what, what we're transitioning to in that plant, just as we did on our main University of Louisville campus plant, is is natural gas that... Uh, that that term "natural" makes it sound nice, but we, we know yeah. we know yeah. where it's really sourced from, right? So, can you talk a little bit about the 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 growth of fracking and what that means for us, for our environment, and our economy? I can, I can to a degree. I'm not the world's great expert on it. Uh, when I worked with scientists on on a, at the National Academy of Sciences about oh, it was about 2003, 2004. The discussion at the time was that natural gas could be a transition fuel. Right, a bridge fuel. Because yeah, yeah, a bridge yeah. fuel, because you get roughly half the carbon emissions from It is a lot gas. better, it, yes. <laughs> it is a lot better. That doesn't take into account all the methane leakage from the fracking yeah. industry, nor the earthquakes, nor the potential for groundwater pollution um, and, the other, and the other kinds Mining of, of environmental sand. harm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of an object lesson in the fact that if you scale an energy source rapidly and, and it's big, um, that there are unintended consequences that are significant, right? Yeah. And so natural gas caused, really caused, undercut the coal industry rapidly, much more rapidly than anybody expected as all these power plants shifted their fuel source from coal to gas. Uh, and they were able to do that pretty, pretty quickly, but they did it because the cost of gas was so low. Right. Now, um, the cost of renewable energy is much less than the cost of, well, it's less than the cost of fossil energy development. And so, um, and so there's an economic incentive to switch away from all fossil fuels. And, and the question is, how rapidly can we do that? How, how, and how can we empower communities to have a stake and a say in determining their own future? And I'm not talking about communities in this ace work we're not talking about communities providing input to decision makers that are far away we're talking about really disrupting the power arrangements right uh, right so that people genuinely have power so that uh, low income and people of color are really positioned to lead they have they have you know people whose voices have been marginalized have an awful lot of valuable stake and a valuable knowledge to contribute. And, and so this model of, of, you know, get community input and then do what you're going to do based on where your, your donor dollars <laughs> come from, yeah. um, is, is not a sustainable future model. Right. <laughs> and, and so shifting those dynamics in ways that really support small D democracy is, is what we're talking about. And that this is a project, right? This is not a flip the switch and it happens. This yeah. is, this is a strategy for our next 10 to 20 years, I think. Yeah. Well, I love that you brought up uh, communities having power because we really mean it in both senses, right? We, we, we want them to have political power and, and people power, but we also want them to have renewable energy power. <laughs> and, That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I, It's true. And, and the solutions that work where I live in Southern California are not the solutions that are going to work where you live in Louisville, yeah, right? Yeah. It all depends on the local the local conditions and the local power availability, sunshine, wind. Um, you know, we can do tons of rooftop solar here in California because we have so many sunny days. Um, that's not true everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so the solutions that work are going to really 
have to be determined in communities everywhere. Yeah, and that takes a lot of community input, like you say, but also a fair amount of research about what does work. Mm -hmm. And that means you need local institutions like institutions of higher ed or other research organizations, think tanks, you know, paying attention to renewable energy futures and what those could look like and trying to demonstrate them. Uh, this is why I'm so frustrated by my own University of Louisville, where we, we do some renewable energy, but we hide it. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll put solar panels on it in a way to make sure that nobody can see it because, you know, that doesn't that looks a little weird, you know. And <laughs> wait a minute, what is the point of doing it if we're going to do it uh, behind yeah. the walls, right? <laughs> I, I have learned something about that phenomenon from uh, social scientists I work with who study public opinion about climate change. And and there is sort of a conclusion in that community that um, the, one of the things that's holding back the United States on climate action is our failure to talk about climate solutions. Right, right. All the time. Only something like 25 or 30 percent of the public talks about climate change with any frequency with their family, friends and coworkers. Wow. Less than a third. Wow. And, and people say they don't do it because it's uncomfortable or it just doesn't come up in conversation or they don't know what to say or they're worried about um, a backlash because they haven't done enough. You know, a lot, I've <laughs> yeah. talked to a lot of uh, institutions that say, we don't want to talk about our, our green strategy because it's we're weak. afraid people will accuse us of not having done yeah, enough. Yeah. And, and that needs to, to shift. We need to start creating a, a, a sense of mutual support for the actions we take, recognizing that Nobody has all the answers. We're not all the way there yet. We, you know, we have to, we need to celebrate our progress while we also recognize we've got a lot more work to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a wonderful way to put it. I, I'm glad you, you brought that up. Uh, it, it, we know that government plays a role as well as, you know, these public participants. Right. And so, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could reflect on the, on the government's obligation to help communities out when, you know, the fossil fuel infrastructure closes down uh, and, and we see mines and factories shuttered. Uh, what, what do you think is an appropriate role? You know, um, I, I am reluctant to speak for all of the people who who contributed to this project and yeah. this book. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, this, this book, by the way, contains that framework that we're talking about, okay. plus commentaries and context and stuff. So um, there are people who work on that problem specifically. And I, I think that, that the government can do some things really well. It can send signals to markets. It can, it can provide financial resources to communities. Um, and, and direct those resources to communities. It can convene people. Uh, and uh, and I, don't, I don't mean that in, a, in any sort of trivial sense. I mean, these are hard decisions. Yeah, yeah. These are, these are decisions where people need to understand each other's interests and concerns. Um, and I'll, t I'll tell you kind of an interesting story that is kind of related to this. There's a, I met a woman who worked for a nonprofit called Greensburg Greentown. Greensburg, Kansas was a small agricultural community, farm town, maybe 10,000 people. And one night there was a force five tornado that destroyed the entire town. Wow. 95% of the buildings were either destroyed or heavily damaged. Wow. And the community had to decide whether to rebuild. You know, like like so many farm towns, kids were growing up and moving away yeah. and going to college. They weren't yeah. coming back, right? What was their future going to be? And I think 
I think Kathleen Sebelius was the governor at the time. And she said, why don't you rebuild as a model green city? Right. And the city took this on. Um, and, and there were grants that helped. There are now more lead certified business buildings in that per capita in that town than anywhere else. Wow. It gets its energy from wind. Um, uh, and it's thriving. I mean, it's an international destination for a model of a sustainable city. Wow. Right. A town and destroyed by wind, now powered by wind. Pow now powered wow. by wind. And I was talking to one of the city leaders because uh, I used to do a podcast years ago. And 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 I was, you know, speaking as a Californian who cares about sustainability. And I just thought, you guys are in a red state. I'm in a heavily blue state. And here you are talking, you know, talking about, with pride about actions that we think are coastal, left coast, <laughs> yeah. hippie values, right? He said, no, no, no. He said, stewardship of the land is in our blood. We're farmers. We don't use the, the language you use, but, but we have the, the values of caring for where we live and caring for our community. And, you know, it, what it means is when you engage with communities where they are on their own terms, you unlock enormous potential. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't know what the future holds for communities that have been, wh whose economies have been extractive economies, you know, like coal and, and yeah. gas and oil. Um, but there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom in those communities that can determine what those futures should look like. And I think that that's, that's what we should empower. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking today with Tom Bowman, joining us from Long Beach, California, a climate expert and co-author of an ACE National Strategic Planning Framework for the United States, which you can learn more about at aceframework.us. He's also co-editor of a book that's just out called Resetting Our Future, Empowering Climate Action in the United States. You can learn more about him and find the book at tombowman.com. I think when we talk about sustainability, Tom, a lot of folks assume it means sacrifice. Like mm -hmm. what you're asking me to do, if you want me to be more sustainable, is to give up something. That's um, right. And that's that's a very difficult framing. It makes it really hard to motivate anyone to take action. In some ways, it's true. We got to give up some old ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we've got to give up on joy or prosperity or community <laughs> uh, or or all the fundamental things that sustain us right health um in fact it's an easier route to those things so i wonder if you could talk about that do we do we really need to to sacrifice in america we're such we're living so high on the hog here we're, we're such big consumers uh is sacrificing part of the solution here or or is there another way to think about it um you put your finger on it. A sacrificing message is a non-starter, yeah. <laughs> right? And a message that says we need to have enough discipline to do this, we must muster, muster our willpower, is like saying we need to make a New Year's resolution. <laughs> and that really resolution that, is right? going to be gone by the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> because, because it's a fine, willpower is a finite resource. We get tired, just like you get tired <laughs> lifting weights. You know, you can't do it all day long. Oh my so, goodness. so... So what if we what if we sacrificed air pollution? What if we sacrificed giving children asthma because of there you the go. particulates they're breathing when you're a highway or a freeway? What if we sacrifice water pollution so that our rivers are clean, right? There is direct evidence now that as soon as we reduce carbon emissions, we improve people's health and they save money 
and there's more productivity in the local economy. Um, this was proven by a health study in the in the uh, regional greenhouse gas initiative, Reggie, in the northeastern states. Um, and they have saved billions of dollars in health costs. Yeah. And huge numbers of lost productivity days in work and lost school days in kids and reduced emergency room visits, all by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So, And that means that they're reducing air pollution, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so what if we reframe this kind of in two ways and this is this is my th thinking this is not i'm not speaking for the ace community overall anymore sure um what if we re what if we say we want to leave behind the things we've always disliked and always felt were burdens <laughs> and and what if we instead want to create a future that's the future we always wanted less commuting less pollution less time sitting in a car going nowhere uh -huh. less trips to the gas station, less, right? Less artificial, less fluorescent lighting, more daylight, uh -huh. um, less feeling isolated from one another and more real human capital in mm. our, and, and real engagement in our cities and towns. If we, if we, because that's what we have available to us and what that means for the level of consumption in our society, I don't think anyone can say. Um, yeah, yeah. We are we are definitely the world's largest consumer of everything, but we've also we've also demonstrated I think that one of the great potentials that hasn't been realized is energy efficiency. Oh yeah, you know uh, in, here in California in the 1970s there was a study done that said how much how many more power plants are we going to need by the year 2000, and they said in the state government let's focus on energy efficiency instead and as a result the average californian today uses the same amount of electricity as they did in 19 in the mid 1970s really and in the rest of the united states that number has doubled <laughs> so we have the fifth largest economy in the world in california which means we can be productive and energy efficient at the same time and in fact it helps so there is enormous potential for energy efficiency all across the country. And just think of all the jobs in every community that creates. If we're going to retrofit buildings, if we're going to rebuild highways and bridges, if we're going to provide electronic infrastructure to everybody, yeah. you know, Internet access to everybody and into schools, we're going to make schools energy efficient and business, commercial real estate energy efficient. Um, that's a lot of jobs for a long time everywhere right it just requires that investment and that investment is one that that grows local economies yeah returns savings every year to local economies so yeah. so i think it's a now does that mean we're going to stop being big consumers at amazon.com and all of that kind of stuff i don't know but it that you know there are multiple there are multiple issues in sustainability, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but energy efficiency, work, and jobs go together like hand and glove. And, and that's one of the ways we can transition away from fossil fuels and not leave people with nothing. Yeah. I mean, in fact, make communities vibrant. Yeah. Wow. It sounds to me, Tom, like you're talking about a Green New Deal. Is, is, that, um, <laughs> is that what you're talking about? Or, yeah. or, or is it not even a... I mean, you keep talking about local uh, organizing around uh, climate change. Mm. So maybe maybe you're not thinking about something at a national scale, but how, how do we move this kind of yeah. agenda forward politically? Well, uh, so uh, a couple of thoughts about that. One is that I, I think that the national work is, is strategic work to enable and empower local work, I think. 
Um, there, there are national policies and national spending plans that matter a great deal. There's no question about that, right? Investments. Um, I wish they hadn't taken the term Green New Deal and branded that because that reminds everybody of the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, which resonates strongly with um, with progressives, but is probably a big red flag for people who believe in smaller government. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a it's a flashpoint kind of a term. It's really a set of principles. It's not a set of policies at this point. Uh, but it, but Biden's green infrastructure investment that he wants to make um, would go a long way to solving these problems and, and really facilitating this transition. And, and so at that level, yes. I'd also want to reflect a comment that that one of the indigenous leaders in this process made just the other day. And I, I heard her say it. She said, you know, let's not make the assumption that all people want to become part of the market economy. Mm. Indigenous, a lot of indigenous communities do not want that. And so, so let's not impose, uh, you know, a set of values from the outside, from the top down onto everybody and say, this is what your future is going to be. Let's in fact work from the grassroots upward so that there is real authenticity in the, in the community development that, that people do. And, you know, the government, the federal government's actions are kind of um, blunt, right? <laughs> right. A, a huge, a huge investment plan is a blunt tool. Yeah. Um, and so we have to understand that it's a, it's a bumpy process. Um, but if it's, but if those bumpy tools empower the communities everywhere to determine their own futures, look out, man, we would make progress so fast. It will, it will make all of our heads spin. I think, I mean, that that's the remarkable thing about empowering people is you discover, and, and this has been documented in, in, uh, business books and in, in all kinds of studies that when you empower equitable participation and you give people the capacity, the opportunity to determine their future change happens. Productive change happens really, really fast. Mm. And so a lot of the idea that this is going to be a slow grinding slog <laughs> toward a sustainable future could be a myth. Well, if I we, suspect it's a myth, if we leave it in the hands of a big bureaucracy, yeah, I could see how it could be slow. But if, <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> if sure. And if you people, leave it in the hands of the vested interests. Yeah. But if you put it in the hands of the people um, to determine that doesn't mean that they're going to squash the vested interests. I mean, it's, it's not it doesn't have to be an antagonistic relationship. Yep. Completely. Um, people want jobs in their communities. There's yep. no question about that. Right. So let's find out. Let's do the big experiment and find out. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, well, we're nearing the end of our time together, Tom. And so I wonder um, if there's any um, really uplifting stories from the book or from the process of pulling the book together that you haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to share. I'd like to, um, to talk a little bit about just how transformational the process was for yeah. those who were involved in it. Um, because people who are never listened to were listened to. Wow. And, and it transformed, I, I think it was transformational for most of us, if not all of us. I, I mean, I can't speak for everyone. As a person who's worked on, on climate science communication and energy efficiency education and all that, um, to discover the depth of knowledge and commitment and capacity 
in youth movements and BIPOC mm. movements and and small scale organizations all over the place and and discover uh, just the amount of wisdom that exists in in our society was was truly remarkable and and watching people from different professions who work in their own silos oh yeah broken out of their silos and discovering the common humanity of this work together <laughs> was was extraordinary and there are more than 400 signatories to this document now if you go to aceframework.us you can sign it as a signatory oh wow and there are organizations you know universities and and um, movements and ngos and businesses have signed on and individuals have signed on individuals can sign on and it, this work is resonating i i got a call from a woman uh who is an activist in santa cruz california who says that our our um, city is starting to work on a climate action plan, and we want to embrace the action for climate empowerment methodology and recommendations oh, really? to drive that process as a case study. It's like nobody's asking people to do this, right? But they are they are finding themselves. They are finding something that speaks to what they care about, and and they're finding it to be empowering because it lets them create co-create. That's extraordinary. I have not yeah. run into that often in this work. And so, um, and that's why so many of us continue to work on this without compensation because right. we're, we see the potential. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I am inspired by learning about this, Tom, and uh, I encourage our listeners to, yeah, go check out the ACE framework, aceframework.us, and consider signing on yourself. Check out Tom's new book he co-edited, Resetting Our Future, Empowering Climate Action in the United States. Uh, it must be tough doing a book tour at these times. <laughs> Yeah. COVID times, right? <laughs> well, well, in a way, it's tough, and I mean, you don't get to meet people and sign copies of books, unfortunately, right. which is really sad. Right. But on the other hand, here we are uh, <laughs> looking at each other over it's over something. the internet. Um, I, I'd like to make a a twisted shameless plug if Please. I can, yeah. um, and encourage everybody to go to their favorite online retailer and and either get the ebook or buy the book. It's only eleven bucks, and. The reason I'm saying that isn't because it helps the authors. The reason I'm saying it is that the more widely this is distributed, the more power it has as something, as a force in the world. And Deb and I wrote this at the publisher's request. I mean, we wrote the framework, and that was reviewed and approved by the ACE community. And it is the core of this book. But the publisher said, can you, can you put it in a book? Because it will have a different kind of life yeah. in the world, right? And and you can drop it on a legislator's desk. Yeah. You can, or a city a city leader's desk, or a, a a boss's desk. And and it it moves differently. And so it can have a lot of persuasional power and and empowerment power in the world if we get the word out and people see it and read it and share it. And and so that's what we're encouraging people to do. Great. Uh, that's not a shameless plug at all. That's, that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us from Long Beach today, uh, Tom Bowman. It's been a great pleasure, uh, and, uh, and I love walking away from conversations like this feeling inspired. Uh, and, and, and I definitely think that local empowerment for climate action is, is key to our sustainable future. So thanks for coming on the air today, Tom. Thank you, Justin. It's been a great, 
pleasure. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a minute, your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas for how you can get involved locally here in Louisville to make sustainability a reality now. So stay tuned. Now I was a child, I walked these hills, drank from the streams and heard the whippoorwills, and I ran through the fields just as fast as I could, through rocks in the creek, up the deep green woods, climbed up on the mountain, there as fresh as could be. Let my Kentucky soul fly free, fly free, fly free Down from the Ohio to the Big Sandy And up in the mountain holler down to the big city Gonna let my Kentucky soul fly free Now that I'm a man, I live in the big city It's a crazy life Don't bother me It's deep down inside I'm still a country boy You know I gotta get back To where I was born Down by the rivers Where I long to be Back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. You're listening to Louisville's community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMP, LP, Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Abram Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to wherever you are in the world at forwardradio.org. And we really encourage you to go there to become a part of our community radio station. Help us celebrate now. We're coming up on our fourth anniversary of broadcasting to you. The, the date will be April 9th. And so we're going to have a pledge drive uh, March 27th through April 9th, and we're going to have a lot of great premiums available that you can pick up on as thank you gifts for your contributions beginning March 27th. We've got some brand new t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, hoodie, face masks, and a bunch of really nice pieces of art, uh, even custom art of your own pet. Wow, there's going to be so many great things. You you can see some previews of it on our Facebook page right now for Forward Radio, but we'll have it all up and running on forwardradio.org on March 27th. And also, we are still recruiting acts for our talent show that's going to uh, be the cherry on this beautiful birthday cake uh, on April 10th. We, we're looking for anybody with a talent they want to share in four minutes or less. We're doing a, this virtual talent show to highlight the, the amazing talents in our community, whether it's musically related or uh, performance of some kind, uh, comedy, theater, uh, juggling, man, tricks, whatever you want to do, we'd love to see it. So go to FordRadio.org and you can still uh, submit your application to participate in our talent show and you could win a hundred dollar cash prize all right friends let's get our calendars open and get our pencils sharpened get ready to take action for sustainability this week so many opportunities to get engaged i hope you're fired up after that great conversation and ready to take action well one fantastic organization i often mention that you ought to get involved with is louisville grows helping uh, advance urban agriculture and our urban tree canopy right here in louisville and they are looking for volunteers to help out in their brand new greenhouse starting this tuesday march 
16th, Louisville Grows invites volunteers to help them prepare for the annual Seeds and Starts sale in the brand new greenhouse, which is up and ready for action next to the Healthy House at 1639 Portland Avenue. Volunteers are needed to assist in potting starts, uh, planting seeds, mixing soil, watering, and performing other tasks in the greenhouse. No experience is required, and all are welcome to come and play in the dirt. Social distancing and face masks will be required, and it all starts this Tuesday, and there are many shifts to choose from. On weekdays, it's usually 3 to 5.30 p.m., or Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can see it all and uh, pick a slot you want to sign up for at tinyurl.com slash greenhouse2021. That's tinyurl.com slash greenhouse2021. Also on Tuesday the 16th at 7 p.m., the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, a proud community radio partner with us here at Ford Radio, hosts their monthly program called Wild and Connected, the Importance of Large Landscape Conservation. It's taking place virtually on Tuesday at 7. And you're welcome to join us along with the speaker, Greg Abernathy, Executive Director of Kentucky Natural Lands Trust. Greg's presentation will be an overview of Kentucky's unique biodiversity and the importance of large landscape conservation. The presentation will spotlight Kentucky Natural Lands Trust Pine Mountain Wildlands Corridor Project. Greg Abernathy is the executive director of the Trust, a Berea-based nonprofit that's working to protect, connect, and restore wildlands. He provides strategic leadership and management of efforts ranging from land acquisition to partnerships and outreach to wildlands philanthropy. Greg joined the Trust in 2012 after many years of assisting on special projects. He's previous experience working for private, government, and nonprofit conservation organizations, both in Kentucky and throughout Appalachia. Greg's background is in forest ecology, GIS, and design. Greater Louisville Sierra Club programs are always free and open to the public. You can find the link to register for Tuesday evening's virtual event at LouisvilleSierraClub.org. That's LouisvilleSierraClub.org. And on Wednesday, the 17th at noon, there's another great virtual event. The Muhammad Ali Center invites you to the next program in their I Am America Racial Justice Series. On Wednesday, it will be the long road to justice. At the age of 26, in conscientious objection to the Vietnam War, Muhammad Ali stated, Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied? simple human rights. A half century later, another 26-year-old Louisvillean, Brianna Taylor, was denied her human rights as she was shot and killed by police in her home. During this virtual program on Wednesday, our esteemed panel will explore the long road to justice, examining our troubled history of policing and race. They'll be discussing how police brutality, racial discrimination, and the dehumanization of black and brown bodies are rooted in U.S. history and how systematic and systemic racism continues to inform the criminalization and policing of communities of color. They'll conclude with a call to action honoring Brianna's life and legacy by ensuring that this injustice never happens again. Panelists on Wednesday will include Benny Ivory, Vice Chair of the Muhammad Ali Center Center's Board of Directors, Katura Heron, Policy Strategist at the ACLU of Kentucky, Pastor Timothy 
E. Findley Jr., CEO of Life Development Corporation and founder of the Kingdom Fellowship Christian Life Center. And it'll be moderated by Rula Aluk, uh, attorney and chair of the Muhammad Ali Center Road to Justice Committee. You can find the link to register for this Wednesday noon Zoom event at alicenter.org, alicenter.org. Coming up this March 18th, it's the third Thursday forum presented by Fellowship of Reconciliation and Sowers of Justice Network. The topic on this third Thursday is reparations, and the speaker will be Reverend Kevin Cosby. Proud Forward Radio partner, Fellowship of Reconciliation, and community partner, Sowers of Justice Network, invite you to join us for the third Thursday Forum featuring Dr. Kevin Cosby, president of Simmons College and pastor of St. Stephen's Baptist Church, speaking on the topic of reparations for those communities harmed and oppressed by the settler colonial class over the founding centuries of our republic. You can register in advance to participate via Zoom or simply tune into the live stream on the Sowers of Justice Facebook Facebook page at facebook.com slash S-O-J-N-L-O-U, Sowers of Justice Network, Lou. A recording will also be rebroadcast here on Forward Radio, so we'll be covering it for you. Again, the place to go to learn more and to register in advance, if you like, is at facebook.com slash S-O-J-N-L-O-U. Coming up on Friday the 19th at 11 a.m., another great online opportunity is the University of Louisville's Sustainability Roundtable. This week's featuring Louisville Grows, none other than the folks I mentioned at the top of this calendar. You can join us for UofL's Sustainability Roundtable on alternate Fridays throughout the spring at 11 a.m. This coming March 19th, they'll be in conversation with Lisa Detlinger, a former guest here on this program. She's the program director at Louisville Grows. Louisville Grows, of course, is an environmental 501 C3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to grow greener, healthier neighborhoods. They seek to be a leading nonprofit in advocating for health equity through the environmental platforms of urban forestry and agriculture. Louisville Grows' neighborhood based urban forestry program focuses on rebuilding the urban tree canopy with the goal of planting a thousand trees a year. Their urban agriculture program is designed to build capacity in community gardens by providing technical assistance, education, and infrastructure. Infrastructure. Healthy House programs, workshops, and classes center on healthy living, healthy eating, environmental education, or environmental equity. No pre-registration is required for this great event. You can find the link to join at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And again, it's coming up Friday the 19th at 11 a.m. online. Find the link at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also on Friday the 19th in the evening online at 6.30 p.m., Squalus Puppeteers will be presenting The Other America, an Anne Braden story. In celebration of Women's History Month and in partnership with the UofL Anne Braden Institute for Social Justice Research, Squalus Puppeteers is proud to announce the virtual debut of their newest show, inspired by Anne Braden's 1958 memoir, The Wall Between. This production combines tabletop puppetry shadow puppetry and a cranky scroll to tell the story of two brave families who challenged housing segregation in the 1950s right here in Louisville. This educational show is meant for a multiracial and multi-generational audience and in the spirit of Anne Braden's legacy it calls upon white youth to imagine themselves as active participants in struggles for racial justice. 
This will be a live screening and follow-up discussion with members of the Squalus production crew and the Ann Braden Institute on Zoom on Friday the 19th. The live event is limited to 100 participants and advanced registration is required. So go now and find the link to register at facebook.com slash Squalus Puppeteers. That's S-Q-U-A-L-L-I-S P-U-P-P-E-T-E-E-R-S Squalus Puppeteers. The entire broadcast from Friday will be available on YouTube and Facebook through Sunday the 21st. All content is free and donations made to Squalus Puppeteers during the event will be split 50-50 with a local black-led activist organization. Again, it's Friday the 19th at 6.30 p.m. live or you could catch it throughout the weekend as a recording at facebook.com slash Squalus Puppeteers. Coming up on Saturday, March 20th, it's the Louisville Seed Bank Project's Russell Seed Giveaway from 11.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. The Louisville Seed Bank Project is a pilot program for 2021 using donated seeds from various nonprofits, business groups, and community residents in the city. The goal is to have monthly free giveaways depending on the season, with coal crops being distributed right here in March and annuals after the frost, and encouraging urban agriculture throughout Louisville. The pilot will be focused on the Smoketown, Shelby Park, and Russell neighborhoods in spring 2021 with the goal to make this countywide, similar to checking out books from a library. Eventually, they can find which seeds and cultivars of plants survive Louisville's wild temperature swings and withstand the urban heat island effect. So come on out this Saturday, March 20th, 11.30 to 3.30. The location and further details will be available at facebook.com slash Louisville Seed Bank. And I mentioned it at the top, Louisville Grows Seeds and Starts Sale at their new greenhouse at 1639 Portland Avenue. You can online order your cold crops uh, beginning March 21st. So I wanted to get that on your calendar this coming Sunday, the 21st. You can go to seedsandstarts.org to learn more. And I'll talk about it on future episodes of this program right here on Forward Radio. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Sustainability Now. It's been a pleasure having you join me, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Thank you.